but I am hoping that God's word would be um, effective in our life as it promises to do so. Uh, let me pray for our time this morning, and then we'll jump in to God's word. Lord, we um, are praying, Lord, that you would move in our own lives through your word and through your spirit this morning. God, it's a unique format, but God, every single time we open up the word of God, the promise of a God who cannot lie is that your word never, ever, ever returns void. So when we hear it, Lord, and ask of you, Lord, to give us understanding, Lord, and to apply that truth, you change us. And so, God, that's what I'm praying for. Lord, um, we're thankful, Lord, for the gospel, what you've done for us. And uh, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, I hope you guys were listening to Harry's sermon on Monday. That was one of the best sermons on purity that I have ever heard. He entitled his message, The Priority of Purity. And today I'm going to compound on that idea. And I want to talk to you about the process of renewing your mind. As we saw in Proverbs 7, as much as you might hear someone say, I fell into sin or that man fell into sin, there is no such thing biblically as anybody that falls into sin. They slide, they meander, they dabble, they peruse, and the young man lacking sense in Proverbs 7 does exactly that. He's not thinking, he's foolish. The young man doesn't drop kick open the door of a brothel out of nowhere and say, let's do this. He says, no, I'm going to walk by her house. Maybe I'll see her. I'm not going to watch pornography, but I'm going to follow this Instagram account. I'm not going to watch explicit movies, but I'll watch this Netflix show that will satisfy my lust. It's just a little dabble, just perusing. Other people watch it and compromise by compromise. So you do not know, Proverbs says, that it'll cost you your life. Many today meander towards their own massacre. They dabble and drift towards their own death. And they saturate their life with the gateway drugs to their own addictions, dipping their toes in the pool of lust all day long. The Bible, listen, does not mince words when it talks about the plight of those who continue to satisfy their sexual appetites. Not only do many people in the church today dabble with sexual sin, they have fully dove into the deep end. Here are some stats that I know to be true. 68% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. Of young Christian adults, 18 to 24 years old, that's you guys, 76% of them actively search for pornography. 87% of women say they have watched pornography. So we say this is just a guy struggle. It's just a guy thing. Not so. 87% of women in the church, that is, say they have watched pornography. A Barna study revealed that 93% of pastors see porn as one of the biggest problems in their church, but only 7% have any plan to deal with it. In non-statistical format, 
the most common message that I receive either in my text messages or in my direct messages on social media is from students or pastors or volunteers who are struggling with pornography or other forms of sexual immorality. Impurity in the Bible is not a niche subject. It's not on the periphery of our culture or you know, even in the Christian world or in the church, and it's definitely not on the periphery of what the Bible addresses. In fact, over and over and over again throughout the scripture, the most clear distinction of a follower of Jesus Christ and a hater of Jesus Christ is how that person approaches the priority of their own purity. Maybe you've heard someone say, impurity is a sin, but it's just like any other sin. I was talking about this with some dudes on Wednesday morning saying, yeah, pornography or lust or premarital uh, sex is a sin, but so is being angry or being jealous or greedy or being a Raiders fan. Yes, all, all sin separates, but not all sin is the same. Not all, sin, not all sin has the same amount of guilt attached to it. Not all sin has the same amount of consequences attached to it. And not all sin affects your relationship, your fellowship, and your intimacy with God, as does that of sexual sin. That's what 1 Corinthians 6 talks about. Every other sin is outside of the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. It is the only sin in its category. Every other sin is outside the body, but you sin against yourself and you sin against the one you've been united to if you're in Christ, and that is Jesus Christ. Purity is the first rung of the ladder in the Christian life. If you ignore this, if you ignore this, you will die. Be passive to the words of scripture, and in the end, Proverbs 5 details the man or the young woman that ignores what scripture says about impurity. It says that you will groan when your flesh and your body are consumed and you will say how I have hated instruction and how my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear, my ear to my instructors. It's saying that if you ignore this as a 19 year old, you're not gonna drift towards holiness. You are going to drift into further depths of sin. And you can't just say you're gonna turn a corner down the line at age 30, it says that if that's your mentality, if you ignore this now, if you don't confess this sin now and resolve in your heart to honor God when it comes to impurity, in the end, you are going to groan. You're going to say, what have I done? What have I done? Why have I hated and spurned and rejected and resisted truth? What was I thinking? But the reality is maybe you've heard these warnings and maybe you know them well. And here's what I want to talk to you about today in God's word. These warnings alone do not lead to heart transformation. Moral obligation alone does not lead to changed affections. Here is my diagnosis of many people in the church today. They have grown up knowing that sexual sin is serious, right? And then they start to dabble and drift. And before they know it, 
they have a serious problem, but they rarely communicate that problem transparently because that would mean they have to obliterate the most precious and prominent idol in their own life, their own reputation. So on a quest of reputation preservation, they keep fighting and disciplining themselves to no longer sin, and the sting of a guilty conscience will drive them to take radical measures for a while. Cut off sin for a while. Not talk to them or hang out with them anymore for a while. Get accountability for a while. And then what happens is after a while, they will get comfortable, think sin is behind them, no longer an issue. And little do they know that Satan, the master strategist, suppresses the the temptation to sin as a tactic he employs and the sin that is momentarily suppressed that they think is no longer present with them comes raging back like a tsunami. Sin strikes again, and then we go through the same cycle over and over and over again. Guilt, promises to God, self-will, discipline. I'll never do it again, Lord. Try to remove ourselves from the sin so that we can communicate it as a retroactive struggle. Yeah, brother, I used to struggle with that, but it's been six months. And so we live and we live thinking that if I can remove my sin, then I can communicate and confess it and say, yeah, keep me accountable for something I used to struggle with. Bowing down to the idol of your own. Pride, all the while, sin is eating you alive. Hear a sermon, get convicted, get motivated, fall back into the same cycle. Hear a sermon, get convicted, get motivated, fall back into the same cycle, on and on and on for weeks, months, and years. When I was growing up uh, in Chicago, my dad kind of had a home alone style to protect our house at night. There was no ring doorbell security systems in 1997. So my dad, I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I would see him setting up Legos on the windowsill and like little glass ornaments and stuff, thinking that if a home intruder came in, that through their shoes, they would step on a Lego and go, ah, you know, and um, they would alert the entire house. But this was obviously an insufficient defense to the danger of burglary. And similarly today, many people attempt to employ insufficient defenses so that they might truly be transformed into the image of Christ. Knowing sin is bad is not enough to transform your affections. It's not enough to change your desires. Saying no to temptation is assuredly, don't hear me wrong, a large component of following Christ. But God's spirit doesn't just call you to resist your desires. God's spirit gives you the ability to change them, to change them. I rarely heard on any message in regards to purity growing up that God doesn't want me to just reject sin. He doesn't want you to just resist and reject and run from your sin. All those things are true. Make no provision for the flesh, Romans 13, 14. Run from it. If your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it far from you. But God's Spirit wants to renew and change what you love and what you desire. Let me ask you, student, do you long to be transformed from the inside out 
Do you long to be free from duty-driven Christianity? Do you no longer want to be plagued by ongoing sin? If you want that, then what you must do is pursue with all of your mind and with all of your might the renewing of your mind. I want to take you to one of the most familiar passages in Scripture. It's Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And often when I talk about passages passages that are familiar, there is this pressure, I think, sometimes to unveil some new level of depth. But that is not my goal with our remaining time. I want you to understand the simplicity of it, and then I want to exhort you to actually go and do it. Harry told you a couple weeks ago that the changing is not in the hearing, it's in the doing. And from the outset, here is where I'm going. You need to have your mind changed by God if you want to be pure. Your affections need to be changed. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You know this passage, and you know verse 1. Because of what God has done for you, Paul says, you are to give him The only logical response to what he's done, the mercies of God, is to give your entire life to him. The mercies of God is what motivates us, and those mercies are most clearly revealed in what Paul lays out in chapters 1 through 11. And that has to do with the reality that you're a sinner, you have no hope, you're dead in sin, and Jesus comes and makes you alive through his death and resurrection. And then not only that, he adopts you into his family. He gives you a hope. And Paul says, because of this, give every single thing in your life to Christ. And then he continues and says, and do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like the world. Do not let the world squeeze you and mold you. Don't let it make it stamp on you. It doesn't matter if you bathe every single day, if you keep going back to play in the dirt. And Paul's saying, don't be like the world. Don't be made of the same mold. Don't play in the same dirt. Most of us are awake, if you're a student, 18 hours a day. And several of those hours are spent under the direct influence of the world. Paul wants you to know, and God's Spirit tells you this morning that you are moldable. You are moldable. There are things you shouldn't do, places you shouldn't go, apps you shouldn't have, relationships you shouldn't be in. You are moldable. R.C. Sproul in the book, Pleasing God, I love this guy and I love this book, says this, the world is a seducer. It seeks to attract our attention and our devotion. It remains close at hand, visible and enticing. It eclipses our view of heaven, the world does. What is seen vies for our attention. It entices our eyes, preventing us from watching for a better country whose builder 
and maker is God. It, the world, pleases us, much of the time anyway, and alas, we often live our lives to please it. That is where conflict ensues, for pleasing the world seldom overlaps with pleasing God. He continues and says, the divine call is this, do not be conformed to this world, but the world wants us, wants you to be partners with it. We are urged to participate in the fullness of it. It presses on us with the ultimate peer pressure. God's word says, if you want to be pure, don't live like the world. Don't conform to it. We are perfectly useless as Christians. If all you do is watch the same stuff unbelievers watch, talk the same way unbelievers talk, view the same things, engage in the same conversations, and yet claim to be a follower of Christ. The way to be different from the world, Paul continues, is not merely by modifying your behavior or your culture, but by something else entirely. It is to be transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of our mind. I like how one pastor phrases it. He says, the Christian life is not the absence of bad behaviors with the presence of new good behaviors. It is something much more profound. It doesn't mean going from the to-do list of the flesh to the to-do list of moral goodness. The Christian life is about being transformed. And I think theologically you affirm this and you know this, but maybe the reason you struggle so profoundly and consistently with sin is that every time you engage in it, you just tell yourself to stop. And what the Bible speaks to is that that's how unbelieving pagans think. Rejecting, resisting, no, I'm done, never again, promise God, is not the way that the Bible prescribes transformation. The Christian life is about being continually and progressively transformed. This word for transformed is only seen one other time in the New Testament, and it's used when Jesus is transfigured before Peter James and John. And Moses and Elijah are on his right and left, we presume, or it says, and it says that he was transfigured before them because it describes something that is remarkable. So how then, how is this remarkable transformation taking place? How does it happen? And Paul tells us, he says, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. One thing I want to note is that I don't think that this is a metaphor I, I spoke on anxiety a few weeks ago, and I was speaking at a conference on anxiety this last weekend. And one of the things I said there, because often different things are brought up and chemically, um, chemically, a person that looks at porn has a dopamine release every single time they watch it. Uh, people that are anxious have norepinephrine and serotonin releases or worried or depressed. And I don't think it's merely talking metaphorically. I think Jesus is encouraging us today that you're not a slave to chemical releases. You're a slave to Jesus Christ. And he calls us to be renewed in our mind, which literally, if you study neuroplasticity, means that it'll affect the way that our brain functions. It's no surprise here that after Paul urges us to offer our bodies everything that we are, as a living sacrifice to Jesus Christ, that he moves immediately 
to the matter of the mind. Because unless there is something wrong with us, our bodies are in submission to our minds. The mind is the control center of the body. Think about it with me. Jesus wants to change your mind. Your mind affects and determines your decisions, your feelings, and with our minds, we determine our affections. And so Paul says that our minds are crucial in giving our entire being to God. If we think wrongly about things, then any exhortation to live in obedience will feel outlandish. But when our minds are placed in jurisdiction under the word of God and the spirit of God, then obedience will follow, not only because we know it's right, but because we want to obey God, because his word and his spirit are transforming us. What's wrong with the human mind? Why do they need to, why does the mind need to be renewed? Well, people think, um, that education is redemption. And that's what, that what is wrong with the human mind is that they don't have the right information. But that's not true because the most educated sinners do the most damage. The people that know the most about the truth and live in sin are the most harmful to families and churches and to the world. The problem with your mind is not a matter merely of information. It is the problem of sin. The unsaved person has a bent against God. And even when you're saved, we still have a flesh nature that we battle. Much could be said about the anti-intellectualism of the way that many approach the Christian faith today. But God's word tells you students that the Christian life begins in the mind. I said previously that Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the Christian faith is a thinking faith. It's not one where you check your brain at the door. The brain is where it all begins. Maybe you've heard someone say, yeah, this knowledge is just in my head, but it's not in my heart. What does that even mean? Your heart doesn't read. Your heart doesn't think. Your heart doesn't contemplate. Your heart doesn't choose. Your mind does. True spirituality, true followers of Christ understand that you must have a mind filled with the things of God. If you want to be pure, your mind needs to be given to God, not passively, but in an active manner to him. John Stott says that the battle for the Christian life is the battle for the Christian mind. But not only does an English theologian claim this, but the anthem of Scripture, as the mind goes, so will the entirety of your spiritual life. Your will is the servant of your affections. And what controls your affections is your mind. The sum and the substance of your Christian life is what you think about, what you want. You do not likely premeditate your behavior. You do not think at three o'clock today, I'm going to be anxious. At 3.45 today, I'm going to have a lustful thought. And so what you need is a mind-controlled 
by God. Here are just a few verses. I don't want to barrage you, but I want you to see what I'm seeing in Scripture. Write these down. Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as a man thinks within himself, so he is. You will become what you are thinking about. So if you constantly are scrolling through Instagram, perpetually permeating your life with different standards of beauty, maybe it's not explicit pornography, but an account that serves as a catalyst for your lust. Filthy thoughts produce a filthy life. Godly thoughts produce a godly life. What you think about determines who you are. Be careful what you let behind the steering wheel of your mind. 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for actions. You are not ready for anything in the Christian life until you have first prepared your mind. You are not ready for the day unless you have first given your mind in submission to God's word and spirit. Don't be a fool. If you want to honor God, Every day's mindset must be given to him. Ephesians 4, 22. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. You guys know this so far. We are supposed to lay aside the old self. Well, how does that happen? How can I no longer be what I don't want to be? Verse 23. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And when that happens, you will begin to see the new self grow, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and the truth. You need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Mark 12, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, the way that the Bible describes or speaks of an unbeliever is as one whose mind is controlled by Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The problem with unbelievers today is that Satan has blinded their minds so that they cannot see God. Consequently, or contrastly, The pure in heart see God, Matthew 5. The pure in heart see him. So then maybe you're asking, and maybe you're on your bed right now watching this on your laptop. Maybe you know you have a sin problem. Purity is not a little struggle. First of all, you need to own it and confess it to others and to God. But maybe you're saying, I don't want to just reject sin, and that's part of it. You'll be running from sin, James 4, the rest of your life. Someone said, well, this always be a struggle the other day, and they asked me, and I said, I will always be rejecting sin. I will always be resisting sin and running to Jesus Christ. But the question is, Johnny, how is my mind renewed? How can I actually change? How can I want to honor God more than I want Sin, more than I want illicit images, more than I want pornography. How can I actually love God more than that? You are slaves to the one you obey, Romans says. And you will be slaves to that which you love. 
And Paul is telling us, and God's word is saying, that you need to grow in your love for Jesus Christ so that sin becomes repulsive to you, so that what you desire is his beauty. How can that happen? And here's the answer. By the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I knew that, Johnny. Thanks. No, listen. And here's how the Holy Spirit changes you. It's through the renewing of your mind. In Titus 3, 5, the noun renewal occurs. And it's the only place it occurs outside of Romans 12, 2. In the whole Greek New Testament or Old Testament, there's not one other place where this word is used. In Titus 3, 5, you maybe memorize this in Awana. It says, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So here's how true change takes place. And what's sad is, I think you already know this, but maybe you're too busy taking a class on the Bible to devote your life to having it change you. And this is what you need to do. Understand that the Spirit of God must take the Word of God in a child of God to transform them into the image of the Son of God. Spirit of God takes the word of God in a child of God and transforms them into the image of the Son of God. And the way that the Spirit does this is not in some subjective way, but rather via the objective mechanism that is provided for us in God's word. Listen to me. Your purity is a reflection of your priorities. If God's word isn't a priority in your life, neither is your purity. Your purity is a reflection of your priorities. If God's word isn't, neither is your purity. So then how can we continue, Johnny, explain it more. How can we have our minds renewed? And I think that 2 Corinthians 3.18 best describes this process. Turn there. If you're looking through with your Bible, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. Now, maybe you've heard before that the Christian life is freedom. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 says um, that where the spirit of the Lord is, I went to 1 Corinthians, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and there is liberty. So then if you're telling me that I have to do all these rules my entire life, I've grown up in the church And most of the conversations seem to be prohibitions. Well, that's true. Eight of the Ten Commandments are prohibitions. Do not, do not, do not. So then how can living in accordance with prohibitions feel like freedom? How can I be a slave of Jesus Christ and yet feel free? Do you understand? This is big. This is big for my own life. How can I experience freedom as a Christ follower and yet be told that I can't do, I can't do? How can I want to do then what I should do. And here's the process, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Second Corinthians 4 told us that what the devil fears more than anything 
is the unbeliever seeing Christ for who he really is. And that's what he wants of a believer as well, to prevent you from seeing with your mind the holiness, the beauty, and the glory of Jesus Christ, to actually think he's better. Psalm 63, you're better. I've tasted and I've seen. I know this, God. You look at the Psalms. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't think many people have tasted that today. The Christian life is experiential for you to see that God is better than everything else, for you to believe that, for you to love him more than you love your sin. And if you continue to think that your battle for purity is merely saying no, you've missed it. What Jesus offers us is that your heart's affections, your mind's affections are transformed. And the way that happens, in order for you to actually feel like you're doing what you crave, and what you crave is obeying God, here's how that happens. You behold God, in the glory of Jesus Christ. And as you behold God in his word, the spirit of God takes the word of God for, and enables you and illuminates your mind to see that God is better, that his paths are peace, that his, his walking with him is more satisfying, more fulfilling, and more pleasurable than your sin. And you need to join him in this work. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so what we must do is humble our hard hearts and present our minds in submission to the word of God and say, God, change me. Help me to be like the one I'm beholding, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, you are becoming like what you behold. If it is dirty images, you will become a dirty mind. If it is the glory of Jesus Christ that you behold, not merely in a study format, but personally in devotion in the morning, God, I want to know you. I want to see you rightly. God will transform you into the image of the one you behold. I took Katie, my wife, uh, to the Long Beach Aquarium while we were dating. And there I was, I'm colorblind, so I appreciate seeing crazy colors because I don't really know what they are, but I know it's pretty. And at the Long Beach Aquarium, there's kelp fish and kelp fish become the color of whatever their background is. So if they go up against the green piece of algae, they become green or a gray rock, they become gray or a yellow flower, they become yellow. I don't know if there's flowers in the ocean. Uh, you can tell me later. They become the color of whatever they're near. And for the Christian, you become whatever you are near. If it's impurity, you will become increasingly and aggressively more impure. What God offers us in his word is to transform your affections. And this is what he has done in my own life. I don't want to merely talk about it doctrinally. Because here's the method that God has used in my life because it's the only one that he gives us. Young man, young woman, God needs to change what you love. And here's the result back in Romans 12. So that you may prove what the will of God is, 
that which is good and acceptable and perfect. What happens then? When we realize that God's will is best, you will be able to test and prove it. When God's mercy grabs you and his grace grips you and your mind is being renewed by the spirit of God and the word of God, then you will be able to look at God's will and prove it because you will know, not just doctrinally, but in your heart, God's will, God's plan is the best plan. His plan is best when it comes to finances, anxiety, marriage, relationships, success, ambition, and sex. His plan is best. Satan doesn't get to take and distort something God made. Maybe you've grown up in the church and there's so much shame surrounding the subject of sex because it's something that you don't do. But let me just tell you, and you know this, I think, God made it and it's beautiful. Don't ruin it. Prove what the will of God is. God made sex for a man and a woman in marriage. Don't ruin it by a fleeting image or by a relationship before marriage. If you are constantly renewing your mind in the word of God, you are cultivating the mind of Christ. And you are understanding and you are loving him more and more. And when this happens, you are in the center of God's will. And then when it comes to the specificities of life, you'll know. You'll know and God will help you. I want to ask you, do you spend more time scrolling through social media than you do searching for wisdom in the scriptures? To be conformed to this world is easy. You just need to immerse yourself in it, to allow yourself to be influenced by it. It takes no effort and brings no reward. But to be transformed by the renewing of your mind takes great effort. What you need to do is immerse yourself in the word of God. And there is great reward. Don't tell me you want to be pure and reject the word of God. There are no sabbaticals or vacations from dwelling on the things of God. There's no shortcuts or alternatives. What you need and what I need is God to renew our minds. And I can tell you confidently, this is what God has done and is doing in my own life. Can I pray for you? God, we love you. And I'm praying that you would renew our minds as the spirit of God takes the word of God and transforms us into the son of God. We love you, God. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. I love you guys.